Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Sean O'Malley. Sean is the host of the Investor Podcast's YouTube channel, and he writes their daily newsletter called We Study Markets. The Investors Podcast is a business podcast network. You've probably heard of their flagship show called We Study Billionaires, which routinely tops all charts and has over 100 million downloads. Sean's job, be it through the YouTube channel or their newsletter, is to help readers and viewers interpret current financial news with a long-term investment perspective. In today's show, we're going to touch on how they built this podcasting behemoth and also get into Sean's investment philosophies and some trends to watch for investing in 2023. Here's Sean O'Malley. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Sean, how's it going? Hey, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me on. This is going to be a ton of fun. Really excited. Uh, really admire the work you're yeah. doing. So um, let's do it. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And this is definitely right in our wheelhouse. You know, obviously, you're uh, pretty well versed in, in the world of investments and Coming off of a year like 2022 and now going into the new year, uh, it's there's just so much to talk about. I mean, it's like, what a crazy time we're living through. It really is. Um, you know, and it's an interesting balance we try to strike because, uh, you know, obviously we preach long-term thinking and uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and some of those famous value investors are our inspirations. Um, so we try to reconcile that with um, our daily coverage of financial markets, right? There's a lot of barrage of news and it can be very overwhelming and overstimulating and there's always a lot to consider um sure. and it can be difficult to feel like you're not overly fixating on the short term um when you're writing about the news each day so um it's a tough balance to strike but it's something we we try to be really mindful of of helping our audience um interpret the news through a filter of sort of a long-term perspective and, and being aware of what's happening in the world but not uh hyper fixating on it yep yeah, and I love that because it's it's like you said, there's just such a barrage of news. And for the layman that's saying, hey, I want to get into the markets, I want to start investing, it's almost a blessing and a curse of how much info there is where you can go right onto your phone and literally up to the minute, see how your stock is doing, how your fund is doing. And it's not like the days I'd imagine, you know, 50, 60 years ago where you just looked maybe once a week in the Sunday paper to see how the week turned out. Yeah. Uh, you have to be really intentional uh, about the information you consume. I think that's more true than ever. Uh, Charlie Munger calls it his, I think, reading diet. But you know, in the same way that you're intentional about the food you eat, you try to be as healthy as possible, exercise. I think we have to do that with content. Uh, it's super easy to just scroll through Twitter and see millions of opinions and get overloaded with, um, you know, not always high quality info that can kind of distort your thinking and um, perception of reality. So. That's that's really the way we think of it is uh, we try to deliver a five minute read in our newsletter to people each day. That's um, as distilled as reasonably possible of, you know, interpreting what's going on in the world and being mindful of, you know, this might be the only news that people consume that day. Or maybe this is the high we try to be the highest quality source of news that people uh, spend their time on. So getting the most bang for their buck of five minutes of reading and um, come out with a reasonably well-informed opinion of what's happening in financial markets. So, Got it. I love it. And so that's a daily newsletter that you write? 
Yeah, yeah, we do it five yeah. days a week. Um, and then okay. we have a weekend edition where uh, it's a little more lifestyle perspective focused, um, you know, can get a little exhausting to just always think about the stock market and investing, even for those of us who are most passionate about it. So yeah, we, we kind of, you know, go a little more hands off on the weekend editions and, and just try to have fun with it and um, engage with lifestyle topics and philosophy. And I think we just wrote a couple on the value of sleep and meditation. And so um, maybe not the kind of normal stuff you might get from, you know, if you just read Bloomberg every single day, you're getting a lot of great financial information, but you're not always getting sort of the lifestyle um, perspective that I think puts things into a valuable context. So, yeah. So there's kind of a little mix there. Yeah. And I wanted to take a step back too, because I know at the outset you had mentioned Charlie Munger and, and uh, Warren Buffett, who I'm big fans of. I've always liked reading, you know, their work just to get some of their perspective on things. So when you're writing these letters or when you guys do your podcast and everything, do you have kind of a school of thought that you adhere to, or do you more just kind of educate? you know, where do you generate some of your investment recommendations? Mm. That's a good question. And I, I would say, first of all, everything's always dynamic. We don't want to be rigidly tied down to, to any school of thought. And uh, the company I work for, the Investors Podcast, is sort of an ecosystem of different podcasts with different hosts. Um, and then obviously, I'm, I'm on the newsletter. So we all have a shared value, which I think is um, the company's starting point was with studying Warren Buffett. And our main show is called We Study Billionaires. Uh, and that started with literally studying billionaires. And like I said, mostly Warren Buffett and then Ray Dalio and, and just kind of many other famous investors over the years, people like Tony Robbins. Um, I just read a piece on Jay-Z. So uh, it kind of, you know, spans a gauntlet. But um, I think our shared roots really do come back to value investing uh, and a perspective of, you know, we're not trying to be day traders. We're not trying to time the market. And sometimes it's interesting to study people who do things like that. Um, and, you know, understand that maybe there's some insight from the way they're engaging with financial markets that we can learn from. But uh, I would say everybody at the company has their own personal philosophy, <clears throat> but uh, we come back to that shared roots of we see Warren Buffett and that sort of value perspective um, that Benjamin Graham first outlined, uh, who's Warren Buffett's uh, mentor, a professor at Columbia University um, yeah. and the intelligent investor, his book. Uh, and that really set the groundwork for really value investing for the next 80 or 90 years, however long it's been since. Um, and that's sure. continued to evolve. And we can talk about that a little bit. But uh, even though we yeah, all have fine. our own personal philosophies, I think that um, that's our our foundation. So what do you think about uh, I know it's it's been almost like the horse that's been beaten so much. It's maybe not new news to anyone. But indexing, you know, was certainly in vogue, especially throughout this huge bull market where it's like you couldn't miss. Now, maybe people are giving it kind of a second look after everything that happened last year. Mm -hmm. um, what's your take on on indexing? Do you think it's it's good just for the average person out there? Or that's what most folks should do. Are you opposed to it? Are you a fan of it? Like, where do you guys comment on that? Yeah, I, I, I would say that. Generally speaking, we believe markets are not perfectly efficient. And so what that means is that people like Warren Buffett with kind of superior knowledge and skills um, can earn exceptional financial returns. Now, that doesn't mean it's what everybody should do because you probably have to spend thousands of hours um, studying great businesses. Um, and you already have to have a pretty high, you don't have to be a genius. I think Warren Buffett says you need like 120 IQ to, to do uh, decently well in the stock market. 
Um, but the point is that, you know, most people in their daily lives are not going to have the time or bandwidth to uh, commit the time they need to deliver uh, really great returns investing and uh, researching individual stocks. So to me, yes, most people should be uh, in index funds. I think it's the best approach. And actually, I just am working on a piece on it. It's really interesting. Um, there's almost a tragedy of the commons with index investing, though. Uh, and it's a really interesting if you zoom out to like a 30,000 foot perspective. Um, basically, the idea is if everybody invests in index funds, um, that's going to bid up asset prices over time, which, uh, you know, correspondingly drives down future expected returns. Um, so it's sort of it's interesting. Everybody as an individual actor, I think it makes the most sense for them to probably own index funds. Um, but at the same time, if society at large, if we all just pile into the stock market with index funds, we're going to drive down returns. And those um, returns that have, you know, been promised to people, maybe seven to nine percent, uh, you know, if you, we often hear that if you invest for a decade or for many decades, you can earn, you know, double digit returns and compound your wealth over time. And um, I do wonder whether, you know, if we move into a world where investing is easier than ever and we can all, it all makes sense for us to marginally use index funds, um, whether that will drive down future financial returns. So it's something we think a lot about. Mm -hmm. um, and if anything, that probably creates more opportunity for value investors um, to yeah. earn superior returns in that so world. So just to dig a little deeper on that. So you mentioned that you don't believe that the stock market to be a perfectly efficient, you know, valuation tool. And so naturally that would mean that there's opportunity out there for those people who are in the know or have some set of skills to, to kind of be a winner. So would that imply that, that there's always, there has to be winners and losers in the stock market? No, it's a good question. It's not a zero sum game, but the way I think about it, and I think uh, if you know Jeremy Grantham, he has a really great perspective on it. And the reason that there are opportunities to kind of win in the stock market, as I said, you need to have a baseline of financial literacy uh, and being able to understand business models. But at the same time, really what I believe drives inefficiencies in financial markets is just human emotion. We saw it in 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, sort of the euphoria that reached different parts of the stock market. If you ask any individual, maybe investor or even professional investor, they probably would have told you, you know, stocks are overvalued and crypto is overvalued and NFTs are crazy and all these things are crazy. Yet we were all wrapped up in it. I know personally, I knew some of the investments that I saw ballooning in price um, didn't deserve those valuations. Yet at the same time, I wasn't going short because um, as they say, markets you can, can ride stay. their emotion. Yeah, yeah, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Um, yep. So that's that's sort of how I think about it. But in the big picture, you know, in a year or two, maybe three to four or five year time frame, um, people can get swept up by emotion. And even if individually you don't think you're swept up in emotion, there's a sort of group euphoria, you know, or it mm -hmm. happens on the downside too, where you saw in the 2008 financial crisis where there's just excess pessimism and, and people start to to think that you know certain business models will never recover and the big bank <clears throat> the big banks are are done forever and you know that they're just totally ruined and um the extremes on both sides um end up driving prices at the margin but they're not necessarily the best representative of how to actually value uh financial assets so yeah. you know in kind of a ho-hum boring year there might not be a lot of opportunity but when you get those really extremes um in emotion that drive mispricings that's sort of our our fundamental um, perspective is that Just you can to find mispricing. Yeah, find mispricing, and again, 
you know, I think to touch back on Benjamin Graham and the early days of Warren Buffett's investing, a lot of the alpha, as it's called, you know, the outperformance they're able to generate was from asymmetries and in information where they could literally just sit down and read a quarterly report. And, uh, you know, it was, we're talking pre-internet days and that information wasn't known by everybody or people didn't know how to, you know, read a financial statement and interpret things properly. Um, and so, just by being able to, to spend the time reading and gathering information and, and knowing how to interpret it, you could actually generate incredible returns. And, and that's what we saw. Uh, we don't live in that world anymore. It's easier than ever to you know, absorb financial data, as we mentioned at the top. Um, sure. So I really think the last um, sort of fundamental asymmetry in markets that can never be um, driven away is, is probably the, the human and emotional factor. And maybe it will be driven away because trading is increasingly automated, but um, where we yeah. are today, I, I think we markets are still driven by, uh, emotion, emotion. Yeah. And the two things that, that just kind of came to mind as you were discussing that, you know, one, I love that quote that you said that the, the markets can, you know, act irrational longer than you could say solvent. Mm -hmm. And as a financial advisor, I mean, I've heard other advisors, I've heard people out there constantly say, this doesn't make sense. How could this happen? This doesn't make sense. And it's like, we've said that through history and it's like it does not always have to make sense like mm -hmm. sometimes the markets are just fickle and, and react literally billions of variables out there of investors um, that are not always rational so that, that was a great point and on the the kind of the the data availability i was just talking recently a good friend of mine that's a pretty big real estate investor and he was kind of complaining he said you know when i got started in this whole thing you had to know somebody you, you could talk with someone you'd get in the know and then, you know, you heard something, a property was going to go up for sale because your buddy told you when you were having cocktails and nobody else knew. And there was like a lot of that almost behind the scenes um, business activity going on where now you can just go on your realtor app and it's like everybody sees it right there. There's not there's just not so much, um, you know, a disparity in information, like you said. Uh, so a question I have for you on the emotion thing. Do you think that that's just going to get exaggerated with the ease of investing when you see Robin Hood, when you see these things where you've got high school kids, you know, literally open up an account and become a quote unquote investor with $50, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that, there's not much more than just emotion for such a, a beginner investor. It's a good question. Um, my guess is that probably so. Uh, you know, if you look at sort of any time in financial history that it's become easier to invest, um, you see almost these mass euphorias that can develop where all of a sudden the masses um, develop a new newfound love for stock investing. And so a lot of the things we saw in 2021, you know, a lot of people will mention that it's very similar to what we saw in the, uh, the dot-com bubble of the early 2000s, where a lot of People found, you know, this this incredible excitement for tech stocks, um, and it was easier than ever to engage with uh, others on the internet and to discover financial information. And uh, people just got swept up in a craze. Uh, so I think fundamentally, a lot of these advances are good. You know, there's this democratization democratization of finance that's enabling people of really all backgrounds to discover um, what financial markets are really about and what they can do. For them in terms of their financial future. Um, so there's a there's a pro and a con to it. I'd say the con of you know this increasing ease of access to financial information and day trading and stuff like that. Um, it is likely to drive bubbles as we've already seen, but at the same time, I think it's still a net benefit for society. And really, as you know, from my perspective, 
I'm looking at it as somebody who's trying to to educate people on investing for the long term. And so I see, you know, how Robinhood and, and Reddit uh, drove the kind of euphoria that we saw in 2021. Um, and now there are a whole lot of people who got exposure to investing, um, had, you know, a really strong interest in it for months or weeks, and they probably failed, they lost money, or maybe they lost, they made a lot of money. But regardless, now there's an opportunity now that they've had that initial exposure to come in and really provide a, a, a foundational baseline and say, hey, you know, you you kind of gambled money on Robinhood, you lost $10,000, but you still should recognize, you know, with a, a savvy approach to investing, you can really build wealth effectively over time. Um, and that's kind of the void I'm there to, to fill. So there's this whole opportunity of people that got exposure to markets um, and maybe not in the right way, but now there's an yeah. opportunity to re-educate them and introduce them to some of the principles that have guided great investors for decades. So. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's kind of the main thing that the pro and the con at the pro side is they got that initial exposure and hopefully they got that itch for more education. And how do I become better at this? Like you said, but I think on the the downside and what I've even seen personally is somebody that didn't have a lot of money. They're just starting out. They got onto Robin hood. They bought cryptos that they couldn't pronounce and then they lost money or, or whatever the case was. And it, then a year later, they're saying, you know, I'm never investing again. Mm. That that stock market thing, that's a racket. I'm done with it. I'm just not investing. It's a scam. And then they just kind of throw this blanket statement out there to kind of disparage just this entire universe of investing. And it, it's painful to see that because it's like, man, you have your whole career ahead of you. You have so much potential mm. in compounding wealth. And and we got to kind of get that stigma removed a little bit just because you had, you know, a really rotten taste right out the gates. And that's some of the fear I have around that ease of access. Yeah. And I would say really that's our job though. You know, our, our job, you and I, is to, to to take those people who have developed, you know, hesitations about investing and um, provide them some of the perspective they might not otherwise have. So um, I mostly see it as an opportunity, but I, I recognize that there's probably a whole generation of people that are, are turned off to stock investing. And again, the, the impetus is kind of on us to change their minds about that. Um, sure. And, you know, it, it's not hard. The evidence is overwhelmingly in the favor of sort I of agree. what I was saying earlier of long-term, you know, index investing. That's really the best way for most people to do it. Um, but again, to touch back, it's really behavioral. Um, you know, if you invest in an index fund and then you sell out every six months because you need the money to, you know, pay off your car payment or, you know, go shopping or just because you're, you know, fundamentally afraid, um, you're not going to get great returns over time and, and you're going to lose out on the promise of um, compounding your wealth. So the behavioral part's a really important aspect too. Uh, and again, <clears throat> that's our job is to educate people on that. So, yep. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And so just kind of pivoting a little bit here, um, you know, I want, you know, I have a newsletter, I have a podcast and everything. I think the lead for me is like you're saying, it's education, it's inspiration, you know, to, to live a, a good, clean, healthy, wealthy lifestyle. But the end result for a lot of this naturally, full disclosure, I'm a financial advisor. That's what I do. I manage tons of assets and insurance and, and the like. What is the business model for you guys where you're essentially a free financial markets newsletter and you're not an advisory firm or anything to that effect, correct? Yeah, no, we're not. Um, and so, you know, everything we say is, is technically not financial advice and it shouldn't be perceived as that. We, we just try to touch on um, the principles. And so in mm -hmm. terms of the, the newsletter business, it's really about um, 
really about hitting scale with uh, a large audience and, and leveraging paid advertising. Um, okay. And so obviously that's not surprising. And there's a secondary part of it too, where we use affiliate partnerships. Um, so, you know, for example, if there's a book we really like, uh, you know, we may do a write-up about it. And then, you know, for example, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. Um, and then we're a part of an affiliate earnings program with Amazon. And so we would link to that book on Amazon. And if people buy it, we might get a small kickback on that. So those are okay. kind of our two primary revenue sources is paid advertising and affiliate income. Um, and then another maybe less obvious way that we try to create value is just deriving traffic and viewers to our other assets. So, um, you know, as a podcasting company with the newsletter, um, we, we have this huge, we have this huge inventory of podcasts. Uh, and so whenever we do a write-up that might, you know, tangentially relate to one of those topics, we just link back to it. Um, and then of course that drives readers to go listen to those episodes, maybe discover, discover our podcast feed, and then they re-engage with uh, our sponsors again. So it's sort of another touch point for us to monetize. Um, and the costs gotcha. are are pretty fixed, you know, honestly, they're not, um, they don't really necessarily scale as we get bigger. Um, right mm -hmm. now we have two writers, myself and a co-writer, um, and we have, we have bonuses and stuff, but we have a mostly fixed salary. Um, we have commission costs for our sales team that helps us find sponsors. Uh, we pay commissions to a sketch artist who makes graphics for the newsletter. Um, and then we have some other things like subscriptions to, uh, you know, Bloomberg News, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. Those are pretty negligible costs. Um, and then we use like business level grammar checking software um, from a firm mm -hmm. called Grammarly. Uh, but really the big picture is that if you can hit scale with a newsletter, um, you can create a really just constant revenue stream of every single day you're sending out to this audience of, of 30,000, 100,000, 200,000 people. Um, and advertisers are going to want to pay for that access. You know, your email, your email inbox is probably much more intimate to you than an ad you might see on TV. So you're going to immediately uh, give more weight to an advertisement that you read in your inbox than you would, you know, on a billboard that you pass by. Um, and yeah. so sponsors pay a premium for that. And our uh, business model is really just finding ways to add value to people in their daily uh, daily routine, you know, informing them about the news, teaching a long-term investing perspective, um, and then allowing advertisers to, uh, to, to kind of fit into there. Um, and mm -hmm. we vet all of our sponsors and, and we try to only work with high quality. That was going to be my question. Yeah, yeah, because I know sometimes... That, that was a knock even on a lot of large financial publications back when it was just paper and magazine is that was there any sort of conflict of interest when the primary driver for that publication is to generate eyeballs, generate ad revenue. And so then you'd start to see, oh, there's an ad here. And then there's an article conveniently kind of pumping that to an extent or, um, you know, very rarely would you see the ad of, you know, here's the great product to, you know, get fit in 10 days. And then there's an article on the next page, you know, just saying the whole thing's a scam or something. Yeah. So it, it, that's good that you vet that. Do you have kind of, uh, what does some of that look like? If you don't mind, as we kind of look behind the scenes here, um, how do you guys vet sponsors? Well, firstly, I mean, we're all investors. We're a company of of people who are fanatic about stock investing and, and really passionate, passionate about just continuously learning more. Um, so mm -hmm. we're always discovering new financial platforms to use and, and new things that make our lives easier. 
and so actually, it's really quite easy. You know, when we stumble across products, people are always recommending stuff to us. We try it out. We love it. Uh, we might reach out to the company and say, you know, hey, can we have an affiliate sponsorship relationship? Or would you like to you know, be a paid sponsor of the, the newsletter? Um, so we always try to align our incentives. You know, it's not lost on us that in a lot of financial media, it is just an eyeballs game. And of course, we're playing an eyeballs game too, but uh, we're a company that's, I think, really deeply rooted in our values um, as investors. And so we try not to recommend things that we don't use ourselves. Um, I know for a fact, we've turned down sponsors and very large deals um, that we just thought were promoting things that didn't align with our outlook, outlook of the world. Uh, so, yeah. And this was great kind of seeing, and I, I could just see, you know, a lot of my listeners that that want to have their own podcast or that are entrepreneurial and getting a lot out of that quick summary that you gave there. So just to elaborate on that. So investors podcast, can you just tell us what some of those assets are and like how many people work for this company? Yeah. Yeah. I think we have around 25 employees. Um, okay. So maybe bigger than you thought. Um, on the face of it, you would only see... We have a couple of different podcasts with uh, maybe six or seven different podcast hosts, two people on the new, uh, newsletter team. Um, and then we have a YouTube host who I used to host YouTube. And then uh, my colleague Veronica now is the, the primary host in that channel. Um, so between the podcast hosts and YouTube hosts and the newsletter writers, that's maybe less than 10 or 12 people. And then we have a whole backend team um, that helps edit our podcast, manage our website. Uh, we actually have like a, a stock picking tool on our website. And so they help manage that. Um, and just a lot of the editing, creating sketches, formatting things. Um, they manage a lot of the backend stuff. So it's it's a it's a reasonably sized operation. Um, and yeah. it's, it's interesting because we all are kind of trying to carve out our own brand, you know, other podcast hosts, or I'm trying to, you know, carve out my own success within the newsletter. And so it's very entrepreneurial, very individualistic. There's a lot of discretion to operate, um, you know, kind of without anybody micromanaging you. But at the same time, we all, like I said, have this shared baseline of, hey, we're value investors. Um, you know, we were inspired by Warren Buffett uh, and his outlook on the world. And we just want to teach other people about that. So we have a kind of, we're all in this together perspective while at the same time maintaining, you know, we're focused on our individual um, you know, podcasts, newsletters, YouTube channels. Uh, so yeah, we're, it's That's an interesting really cool. blend of, of personalities and people. Yep. And, and I, I like that you, what you alluded to, and, and I know a lot of people out there already realize this, but that you can scale and, and grow this whole thing and the fixed costs don't have to move that much. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, I mean, when you just look at technology and what we could do now, it is obviously really cool. And that's what I wanted to ask you too. Is so like when you're within kind of this, it's almost like a micro economy in this larger economy of your company, mm -hmm. what's what is your goal? Would there ever be a breaking off from investors podcast? Or is that like an umbrella that is going to be silent someday, yet it owns a lot of different kind of media outlets? It's a good question. Um, I, I would say that we first made our pivot to being what we might call a broader financial media company about a year or so ago. Uh, so before we were only making podcasts with uh, two or three different podcast shows, uh, and that was where all of our revenue was coming from. And it was a great place to be for eight years. It was quickly growing. We were at the top of the charts, but capitalism is bru brutal. Uh, and so whenever you're making profits, um, people want to come and take a bite out of it. And so uh, our, co our one of our co-founders, Stig Broderson, he quickly realized that we needed to diversify and that we had this really valuable podcast audience that we weren't really monetizing well in other ways. 
Uh, and so that's actually how I got hired. That's the story of how I joined um, the Investors Podcast. Uh, I started on the YouTube channel and then I've merged into kind of bootstrapping the newsletter. Um, and, you know, we had an email list, but it wasn't a daily product. It was something maybe we did once a quarter. Uh, and so I think our goal over time is to you know, continue to, to be an industry leader in podcasting, but to, to branch out into these different forms of media. Right. We want to have uh, if you're familiar with Morning Brew, they have millions of readers. Um, and I would say that they're not necessarily a mission driven newsletter. Uh, you know, they're doing a right, really great job of educating young professionals. But we see sort of an opportunity to take people who might read Morning Brew every day, maybe like a 25 year old who lives in New York City and, you know, maybe uh, traded stocks on Robinhood two years ago, uh, who are maybe getting a little more serious about their finances. And they they want to kind of, you know, set a, a guiding philosophy for, um, you know, their life and for their investing uh, that'll carry them for decades. So, yeah, that that's sort of as a, a I, I think that encapsulates um, our mission yeah. uh, as a company, and then specifically within the newsletter. So, gotcha. And is there a like a leader within this silo of of assets or businesses? Because, and the reason that I ask that is I know like Timothy Ferris, for instance, I'm a big fan of his. He says that the books, the the YouTube channel, the weekly newsletter, all of that is meant to funnel back to his podcast. And then if you listen to like James Clear, you know, he says the books, his podcasts, his speaking, all of that is meant to funnel back to his newsletter. That that's yeah. and it's kind of like they each have said, you know, this is my thing and everything else is kind of ancillary and it's used as a feeder. Do you guys follow that model or is it like everybody go for the top and, and let's just see what kind of rises? <laughs> I think you know, we all feel like we're shooting for the top, but at the same time, realistically, there probably is a, a feeder structure there where um, maybe the YouTube channel, you know, we have downloadable PDFs that help people learn about investing that we embed in every video on, on the YouTube channel. And so the hope is that people will download that and then they get added to our email list and then they start reading our daily newsletter. And then, you know, within the newsletter, we're linking to our podcasts um, and then also back to our YouTube videos. And so, yeah, the hope is to create this sort of native, ecosystem where you're reading our newsletter and then you're listening to our podcast and then you're watching one of our YouTube videos. I think ultimately right now, the goal is to drive people to the podcast. Um, our main one being we study billionaires uh, because we'd like to maintain that moat of, you know, once you're at the top of the podcast charts, um, it's sort of a, a you know, self-perpetuating feedback loop because People see you at the top of the charts and then more people listen and then they recommend it to more people and it just keeps compounding on itself. So I would say our, our biggest competitive advantage is the fact that we're on the top of the charts for, uh, you know, business podcasts. Podcast. Uh, yeah. And we, we try to leverage that. But, you know, personally, since I'm more focused on the newsletter, I would say my goal is that, you know, we study markets. The newsletter is the fastest growing part of our company. Uh, and, you know, one day maybe that feeder will kind of reverse itself. And instead of being a vehicle for directing people to the podcast, maybe the podcast will be a vehicle for directing people to the newsletter. Uh, they're, they're probably, YouTube is harder to monetize, but um, really you could probably do about as well with the podcast as you can with a newsletter in terms of, um, you know, the CPMs on that. So, yeah. And one's not inherently better than the other, I wouldn't say, but, you know, because we do have, uh, you know, we're most known for a podcast. That's typically where we redirect to, but my goal is to have We Study Markets be uh, the most valuable asset within our ecosystem. 
maybe within the next five years. And I I think it's possible. Uh, We're just kind of continuing to grow slowly every single day and just keep compounding. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I I really like what you're saying because I I work with obviously a lot of business owners and that's what I always talk about is like there's kind of that cycle where you know you can have this explosive growth once you've really found your niche and you're first to market or whatever and then you start to plateau a little and then there could be some complacency or just kind of stillness and then the company can decline as you have all those other kind of young guns fighting for the top. So mm-hmm. I like that that when you can have kind of these little micro economies within that they're each their own entrepreneur. It it seems to always kind of keep that fire going. So, and I appreciate the background there on the podcast. I'm sure some people might even be inspired to go start one or a newsletter, I should say. Uh, But I want to go back to, to the markets and really your area of expertise. So what trends are, are you following right now? I know that in 2022, just, it was inflation dominating the conversation. It was the fed, you know, maybe in in my opinion, kind of acting a little too late. I I think that they, I don't know why they were kind of seemingly so ignorant of inflation 2021 when we had five months of it there, I think it was going to be tough to call transitory, but nevertheless, you know, they decided to start raking heights or hiking rates, excuse me, uh, aggressively. And that was the story of 2022, but where are we right now? It's a good question. I'll say in the lead up into 2022, uh, inflation and interest rates, as you know, have have dominated the story. And it was actually something uh, my senior year of college in 2020, I, I remember writing a paper in my investments class saying, ma- basically making the case that we were going to see double digit rates of inflation over the next two years. And I actually tried to position my portfolio for that. Um, it's harder than you might think to really kind of, um, you know, you can be directionally correct and still not necessarily benefit financially, which is an interesting thing that I discovered. But uh, in terms of 2023... Can, and not not to interrupt, because I think yeah. that is a huge point that frustrated a lot of people last year, is they said, I could see inflation coming, but then it seems like the moves I make did not yield the outcome I expected. Can you just pause right there and tell us kind of like what maybe you did or what was kind of that disconnect between I see it, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to really bring it home? Yeah, yeah. So I guess in my specific case, um, I was looking at interest rates and I was saying, okay, we're probably going to have 7 to 10% inflation in the next year. And what does that do for interest rates? And I, I sort of operated under the assumption of that, you know, like we were talking about earlier, markets are rational. And so if if you're losing purchasing power at 7% a year, you're going to demand um, positive interest rates, which means maybe interest rates go up to 7 8%. I didn't think they'd quite reach that high. But, you know, when we were at a bottom, um, you know, at like between 0 and 1%, it seemed like there was a huge asymmetry um, where rates could go a lot higher faster than you know, many yep. people in mainstream media were expecting. Uh, and so what I did is I used uh, an instrument called PFIX. It's an ETF. Um, and they have some long dated options that basically give you exposure to, uh, it's essentially shorting long-term treasury bonds, um, 30-year treasury bonds. Uh, so I was betting that um, interest rates were going to move up dramatically, uh, especially on the back end. And kind of what we've seen is the yield curve is pretty deeply inverted. So I didn't lose money on the trade. Um, it's, it's, I, w- I hate to call it a trade um, on the sort of hedging interest rates, I guess is the way I would think about it. Um, I didn't lose money on it, but it certainly didn't pay off the way I thought because um, 
you know, even with the jump in inflation, interest rates have also risen on the front end, but on the back end of the curve for long-term bonds, they haven't risen nearly as much. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, like to your point, you can kind of generally be correct and say interest rates are going to rise, but okay, well, are you going to buy short-term bonds? Are you going to buy long-term bonds or how are you going to hedge? Are you going to buy treasury inflation protected securities? What type of stocks are you going to own? So, it's one thing to be correct. And then it's another thing to position yourself accordingly and then to really fully capture that, that insight that you might have. So it's, it's a tough thing to it's, do. Um, and it I think, really is. And, yeah. and you saw it. I mean, if you talk with people who are bond investors or they thought, Hey, I made the right move where I think the stock market's getting overvalued inflation's here. Interest rates are going to go up. This could hammer the stock market. Let me go to fixed income. And then you look at how those folks ended up last year. It was about as bad. Mm -hmm. So it, it it's it's interesting, you know, just like you said. So I think spotting where we're going, you said it perfectly. <laughs> Seeing where you're going is one thing, but then kind of taking the plan of attack that's perfectly in line with that is like a whole nother, you know, story. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and so says, I guess build, building on that too, um, in terms of, you know, the outlook for 2023, something we started writing about last year was, you know, the quote unquote death of the 60-40 the portfolio, which is the idea that, you know, you might have 60% stocks and then you have, you know, some considerable 40% allocation of bonds to sort of offset the downward volatility um, of your portfolio and, and stabilize things over time. And what we learned in 2022 is that, you know, stocks can go down a lot and then bonds in some cases can go down even more and be, you know, there were times last year when, you know, long-term bonds were more volatile than stocks, many stocks. So um, a lot of the relationships in financial um, advisory, I would say, are derived from, uh, you know, past data of what's worked historically in markets with not enough attention to how are things changing and why, you know, for example, have, um, you know, stocks and bonds had a, a negative correlation where they can kind of complement each other in the past. You know, what are the structural reasons for why something like that might happen? And it's a good question. And I don't know if I have the answer to it, but um, it's certainly something we're, we're keeping an eye on of saying, okay, you know, um, what is this interrelationship between stocks and bonds going to look like in the future? And uh, what does that mean for people's portfolios? And yeah. I think it has major consequences. And then on a, a slightly different topic too, I think one of the things also structurally that we think a lot about is, or at least I personally think a lot about is, is this concept of, of deglobalization. Um, and the idea that we're moving into a world that's increasingly uh, vulnerable to sort of ex exogenous shocks. Um, you know, we saw that with the Russian war uh, invasion of Ukraine. We saw it with the pandemic. But, you know, when you have these crises, a lot of times populations turn inwards. Um, and we're seeing that too, where a lot of manufacturing is returning to the US. And this kind of paradigm of 30 or 40 years where jobs are getting pushed out and we're outsourcing and we're sort of uh, exporting inflation because we're producing things in areas with um, lower cost of labor that allows us to consume um, at artificially low prices. Uh, I think we're seeing a, the first structural pivots in that sort of long-term trend. So there's going to be a lot of second and third order consequences of that. But we talk about it a lot uh, in the newsletter. I'm just trying to understand, yeah. you know, how possibly is, is you know, what does the next decade look like? Uh, yeah. And again, and I think with with the, the just to interrupt on like the, yeah. the deglobalization versus globalization, 
it's I guess my question would be is like, what's here to stay? Because it seems like everything has other motives to it. Nothing mm. is just like 100% organic. So you say, all right, we'll deglobalize because Russia invaded Ukraine. There's this oil shock and there's a whole mess that we're dealing with. But then, of course, you know, different politicians, different companies, they have their own agenda and then they mm. can kind of hijack whatever the current event of the day is to kind of fit within that. But then I guess what I would push back to that argument would be like, doesn't then capitalism perhaps rule the day where we mm. say, OK, that's what we're going to do because it's the righteous thing or it seems right right now. But then three years, things normalize and you say, well, I can go to that country and buy this widget for 10 cents less. And then capitalism enters the picture and those companies got to do that to be you know, profitable. And, and then consumers you know, don't want to pay an arm and a leg for something that they don't have to. So it seems like there's this, always this tension between mm. what makes sense, maybe, and then just like, get me something that works and is cheaper. And they kind of go tug of war back and forth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a good, I mean, that's a, that's a perfectly fair um, counterpoint. I, I wouldn't even say I disagree with it. Uh, and it, it really, with everything, whether it's investing, life, whatever, you know, it's sort of the time frames that we're talking about. You know, I'd like to think on a longer time frame that that's probably true. Uh, but it does seem like there are some strong factors that, you know, we're in this post-COVID world. And um, you think about the game theory of you have all these individual actors of people, companies and politicians who, you know, they're not all acting in sync, right? It's not, you know, we talk about China and China's doing this. Well, what does that mean? Well, well maybe China is a bad example because it is a bit of a totalitarian top-down regime. But um, at the end of the day, a lot of this is, is independent actors making, you know, marginal, rational decisions. Uh, and so I think a lot of people realize that, hey, you know, our business is, is pretty fragile. And, you know, our supply chains got pretty disrupted by, you know, COVID lockdowns. Maybe we need to bring some of this stuff closer to home so we can, you know, keep operations uh, more under our thumb. And so that's sort of the, the general thinking, at least how I would frame it as uh, people all over the world. You know, we went through this decade where not really a lot happened. Um, and it was mm -hmm. very easy to just kind of get lulled into the comforts of, uh, you know, a very safe world order. And, you know, now when suddenly you have a, a major crisis, it can push people in, in two directions, um, you know, and, and maybe we end up double down, uh, doubling down on the, the kind of current world order, or maybe people pull back. But um, it's all yet to be seen. And so that that's sort of one of the stories of 2023 that I think I'll, I'll continue to watch and we'll be writing about a lot in the newsletter just to you know, continue to updates of you know, how are um, changes in trade uh, progressing. And you know, um, another big thing is you know, foreign ownership of the treasury market and are foreign investors continuing to want to own um, American financial assets, sort of things like that, um, that might be representative of some of the broader changes at hand. Okay. Great point. I think that's something people want to stay definitely in tuned on. And so with that said, you know, kind of more of a shift, it sounds like from your con getting into kind of international affairs and, and the impact that's having on investors. With that said, does that mean that inflation is now starting to take a backseat? Or mm -hmm. are you guys just kind of moving on from that conversation? Like what's some of your take right now on, um, you know, can we see the light at the end of the tunnel, I guess is the question. It's a good question. I, I would say, you know, I, I can't speak for for everybody at the Investors Podcast, but I know personally, 
Um, my thesis is sort of that we're moving into a, a structurally more inflationary decade. And that pairs with my, my sort of thesis for <clears throat> deglobalization. Uh, you know, like I said, if all of a sudden you're bringing jobs back to the U.S. and you're manufacturing things in the U.S., well, we pay people more than they do in Bangladesh, right? So that means structurally things have to be more expensive. If you're going to move energy production and goods production back to Europe and the U.S. Um, and, and kind of restructure global supply chains, things just get inherently more expensive. Um, so there's, there's two hands to it. Um, I think... We've lived in a very fragile world. Uh, it didn't take a lot to, uh, you know, outbreak of a virus. I mean, obviously that was a, a major thing, but uh, we're still feeling the effects of that several years later. So I, I think it's indicative of, of just how fragile the global economy had had become. So in terms of inflation, I, I do think structurally the economy is, is currently very vulnerable to these shocks. And then we're working through this process of, you know, okay, I think the news just came out today that, you know, Russia to push back on Western sanctions is cutting oil production, and that's going to push energy prices up higher globally. And so that's sort of another shock and just this ongoing series of kind of poly crises, as, as some yeah. people call it, um, that ultimately push prices higher, right? When you get disruptions to how things work, um, you create inefficiencies that disrupts you know, supply and demand and, and ultimately push prices higher. So I feel like we're working through a period of, of global fragility that, you know, hopefully, as you say, eventually resolves itself. Um, but I would say, I would think that for the next couple of years, a lot of these fragilities and this process of, um, you know, quote unquote, deglobalizing and, and kind of shifting global supply chains and production, um, ultimately that is structurally going to raise the cost for a lot of the things that we rely on which of course is going to be inflationary. So in terms of, you know, is... So in, just to kind of summarize that, it sounds like yeah. if that was to come to fruition, a little more of this deglobalization, it sounds like countries and their people, the consumers would then be willing to pay more for a sense of security, you know, because that's, I, I guess that's ultimately what it is, is you're saying we want to reshore some of these jobs, this manufacturing, et cetera, the supply chain. And we know it's going to cost more because that's just the way it is. And the reason that we're doing that is so that we can have a little more control over, you know, the process. Is that essentially where you think kind of going back to that tug of war, it'll be, you know, yes, we'll pay a little bit more, but we'll gain some more control. It won't be left maybe just to, to Russia or to Taiwan saying, you know, we just got to take care of Taiwan and, you know, yeah. keep China out of the box. I think that's a good way to think about it. There's a, a, a security premium that we're going to pay over the coming years um, mm -hmm. to basically defragilize our uh, economy to, <laughs> to, to, to kind of um, make things more robust. And yeah, it, it's going to be, a, I think it's a painful transition period. And I'm not saying that's exactly, you know, 100% um, how things are going to unfold, but it does seem like the trend that kind of directionally things are, are moving in. Um, yeah. And the last thing that I think maybe we have time to fit in here that I, I think will put a nice bow on it for this conversation. We talked about globalization. We talked about inflation was kind of in the more of a rear view context. It, what brings all of this together, I think, is debt. And so mm -hmm. I just want to get your input on where we stand as a country. You know, we're talking, you know, we have had a lot of international guests. This is all about America right now. Mm -hmm. Um the debt picture we're in right now, it just seems like 
people have grown numb to it where it seemed, I, I mean, I feels like yesterday that you were hearing, oh my gosh, if we get to $20 trillion of debt, that's that magic number where, oh my gosh, look out, what are we ever going to do? Mm-hmm. And then we can eclipse 30 trillion and people don't even know. It's like, it just happened in the blink of an eye. Is that a problem or is that just a symptom of kind of how the economy works? Yeah, it, it's it's a really good question. I mean, the two the two ways I would think of it is, you know, on the one hand, there's a lot more the government can do to kick the can down the road than people expect. Uh, I have this conversation a lot, and there's always sort of this narrative that there's impending doom, you know, from uh, you, you know a debt collapse, and, and it's possible. And uh, you know, the government budget is is you know the deficit is too big, and I, I would generally agree with that. Um, but you know, you look at Japan, they are like the, you know, top of the cream, you know, cream of the crop when it comes to kicking the can down the road. And they've been doing things with their debt to GDP ratio that, you know, I think they're, there's just like twice ours, something like that. Uh, and so they've been playing this game. They're probably two decades further on in the process of running big deficits, um, and just having your central bank, you know, quantitative easing, absorb a lot of those debts and just financing, you know, the spin, spin, spin culture. So on the one hand, I'm inclined to think that they can kick the can down the road farther than most people think. On the other hand, do I think it's a good thing? No. Do I think it's a symptom of, um, you know, probably a fundamentally unhealthy global economy? I certainly do. Um, So yeah, I, I, on, on the one hand, they can kick the can down the road farther than most people think. On the other hand, are we moving in a good direction? Should we continuing? Should we be continuing to kick the can? I, I would say probably not, um, yeah. but I don't know. I don't know if it's a cycle that we can we can break out of. Uh, I don't think anyone even expects to break out of it. I, I feel yeah. like the debate now is like, do you really want to punt it or do you just want to give it a yeah. little kick? It's. You know, I feel like those are your two options that that are kind of uh, being debated right now. Yeah, and, and we could talk. Yeah, Sorry, ahead. I was just going to say on that one last point, because you said about punting it, um, you know, there's an economist named Richard Duncan, and he has a really interesting theory on it of basically uh, what we should be doing is rather than spending our budget on a lot of the things we currently do, we double down and triple the deficit and take all that money and pile it into artificial intelligence and like breakthrough technologies that are going to oh set up gosh. the U.S. for the next century. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with it, but it's an interesting kind of idea in theory where you have some people who say, well, actually we should be you know, doubling down. If we can really effectively spend a lot of this money, we can set ourselves up with tech breakthroughs that give us you know, unbelievable you know, orders of magnitude advantage over some of our competitors, yeah. which- you know, I think a lot point, of that assumes like a, a very productive and efficient use of dollars. Exactly. Where that's the other side of that coin. And that's happened plenty where we say, let's pour money into it. We'll leapfrog the competition. And then, you know, maybe 10% of that money gets applied as we had hoped for. And now we're in a worse situation than we began. But it definitely is an interesting thesis. For sure. So this was great, Sean. I know we covered a lot of ground here. Um, Is there anything that that you'd like to perhaps leave our listeners with uh, as we break for the day? Yeah. Yeah. I I would encourage anybody, um, if you haven't ever kind of dove deep on some of Warren Buffett's work, um, the essays of Warren Buffett is a really great book. Um, and 
perhaps I'm biased. I'm not sure how Buffett is perceived in the mainstream anymore because I, I've been kind of a loyal follower of his advice for for many years. But uh, it's he provides really deeply insightful um, per perspectives on investing uh, and really just living a, a humble, simple life. So I draw a lot of inspiration from him. Um, and again, he's kind of the, the foundation of the the media company that we've started. So I'd encourage people. He writes these beautiful shareholder letters every single year um, that are just packed with wisdom. So you can go back there, archives going back to, I think, the 60s and 70s of every letter he's written every single year. And you talk about, you know, getting some perspective on, on current issues, you know, go back and read back his letters in the 80s. And people were talking about the deficit budget crisis and all the same issues that we're, we're talking about now. So it adds a lot of really compelling perspective. Yep. Yeah. It's a lot of uh, history in different ways kind of repeating itself. So thank you, Sean. That was a, a lot of really cool insight there. And uh, everyone, thanks again for tuning into the Kaderna podcast. Again, I'm Brian Kaderna. We listened to Sean O'Malley today. Be sure to check out his YouTube channel, uh, listen to any of the investor podcast shows, or you could subscribe to his newsletter, We Study Markets. We will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.